This is an AMI podcast. Good morning. It's Monday, August the 15th, 2022. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-audio and AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go! I showed those horns on a Monday. Coming up on the show today, Michelle McQuig of the Canadian Press takes a closer look into a news story about enrollment for autism therapies in Ontario. Accessibility specialist Thea Curdy discusses the necessity and the standards for accessible hotel accommodations. Dave Thompson will share some details about an upcoming job fair hosted by the Richmond Centre for Disability in British Columbia. Tech company Ericsson believes a holistic approach to deployment can keep energy usage and costs down as more and more high-powered networks roll out. Mark Aflalo of Double Tap TV will give you the details. And Amy Amanti will be here with a review of the Netflix romance film, Purple Hearts. But let's begin the show with our top story of the day. It is the one-year anniversary since the Taliban took over Afghanistan. Activists and MPs are accusing the federal government of not doing enough to resettle Afghans who were in danger of persecution from the Taliban. In the years since the Taliban took control of Afghanistan, just over 17,000 Afghans have been resettled in Canada, less than half of the government's goal. NDP immigration critic Jenny Kwan says families are being split up and people are in hiding. And over in Afghanistan, the Taliban are, make, are marking the year since they seized control of Kabul. Ian Panel is on the ground. Today is victory day for the Taliban. They've taken to the streets to celebrate their victory, their independence over the American presence here in Afghanistan. But this isn't the reality of the country. For the vast majority of Afghans, today is a day of mourning for the loss of hopes and dreams and opportunities. Taliban supporters staged victory parades on foot, bicycles and motorcycles on the streets of the capital. Coming back to Canada, the Prime Minister's office has confirmed that Justin Trudeau will accompany German Chancellor Olaf Scholz on a Canadian visit later this month. Roger Ward looks ahead. The trip will include stops in Montreal, Toronto and Stephenville in western Newfoundland. In a statement, the PMO confirmed the August 21st to 23rd visit will start in Montreal where meetings will be held with German and Canadian business leaders. The statement says the two men intend to talk about clean energy, critical minerals, the automotive sector, energy security, climate change, trade, and Russia's, quote, illegal and unjustifiable invasion of Ukraine. Roger Ward, the Canadian Press. Let's head over to Alberta, where conservation advocates are concerned that a proposed Calgary to Banff passenger train is chugging along without addressing some key environmental issues around Banff National Park. Lead developer Lincoln Capital Incorporated touts its proposal as a hydrogen-powered transportation solution with lower greenhouse gas emissions than driving. Josh Welsh, Alberta Program Manager for Yellowstone to Yukon Conservation, says it could be sustainable transportation, but would also add another disturbance to our already busy landscape for wildlife. We're talking about essentially cutting up the habitat, disconnecting wildlife grizzlies in particular from their patches of habitat and disconnecting them from the land that they need to to find mates, to, to find haven, to find food. So we have some big concerns around what the impact would be. The group would like to see an environmental assessment completed before the proposal goes any further. While we're talking about climate, the United States set a new record in July for overnight warmth 
Norman Hall has more. Meteorologists say the continental United States in July set a record for overnight warmth, providing little relief from the day's sizzling heat for people, animals, plants, and the electric grid. The average low temperature for the lower 48 states in July was 63.6 degrees, which beat the previous record set in 2011 by a few hundredths of a degree. The mark is not only the hottest nightly average for July, but for any month in 128 years of record-keeping. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration says July's nighttime low was more than three degrees warmer than the 20th century average. I, Norman Hall. And because he gave you that number in Fahrenheit, I thought I would translate that to Celsius for you. 63 Fahrenheit works out to about 17.2 Celsius, 17.2 Celsius as the average overnight temperature in the continental U.S. And again, while we're in the world of climate, there's also a new poll that has taken a closer look at how Americans feel about climate change. Donna Warder has those numbers. The poll taken in June by the Associated Press and the Nork Center for Public Affairs Research says Americans are less concerned about how climate change might impact them personally than they were three years ago. They're also less concerned about how their personal choices affect the climate, like Indiana banker Desmond Adele. We have economic problems. We have social inequality problems. I definitely think those are a higher priority. Roughly two-thirds of Americans who answered the poll say the federal government, developed countries abroad, and corporations and industries have a large responsibility to address climate change. Donna Water, Washington. And while we're talking about experiences on the ground in America, former U.S. President Donald Trump is back online attacking the FBI and the Justice Department for abusing their powers despite a court order authorizing a search on his Florida home last week. Reporter Andy Field has the latest from Washington. On his Truth Social site, Donald Trump again claiming the FBI's search of his Florida home as a former president is totally unheard of, and that what he calls this break-in was a sneak attack on democracy, and that, quote, the entire nation is angry. In fact, a judge ordered that search for probable cause, indicating the Justice Department is investigating Mr. Trump for possible obstruction of justice and espionage act violations. The FBI raid resulted in the removal of 11 sets of classified documents. Let's get to our daily polls. At AMI-audio is where you find us on Twitter. Accessible Media Inc. is where you find us on Facebook. On Friday, we asked you, do you own slash use wearable smart technology like watches, rings, glasses, etc.? And if so, we want you to tell us about your experience in the comments section. 22% of you said yes. 78% of you said no. Studio Brock tweets in, for any of my comrades looking to get a wearable device, don't cheap out. The no-name stuff is nothing but e-waste with terrible software to say nothing of accessibility. I own a Galaxy Watch 4 Classic because it's beautiful and the physical bezel for operation is very nice then we also had a facebook user write in the answer is yes i am blind and need such equipment in order to be independent on my daily life a all very expensive to buy okay today's daily poll at ami audio on twitter accessible media inc on facebook let's uh play some sound to set this up before i read the question last friday ontario premier doug ford was giving an outdoor press conference and a critter decided to interrupt the proceedings. Let's listen. It's coming from the health sector. <laughs> Holy Christ. I just swallowed the beef. Oh my Holy God. Christ. I knew that little bugger. Oh. Drown him. Drown him. Okay. I'm good. He's down here buzzing around right now. He has a lot of he has a lot of real estate. Now, if that was in the clip, okay, this is going to be replayed over and over again. Accurate. Replayed over and over again. And even though it happened on Friday, I said, 
We're going to play that on Monday's show. And it's going to lead to the daily poll question at AMI-audio on Twitter, Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Do insects like bees and wasps and mosquitoes dissuade you from eating or drinking outside? Yes or no? I'm a firm yes on this one. I do not like being buzzed around while I'm trying to be consuming things. So I don't like it. I like sitting inside where there's no sun, where there's air conditioning, and where I can feel comfortably safe away from the critters. Except that uh, the local bar that I've been hanging out at seems to have a bit of a fruit fly issue. But uh, that's another form of disgusting in its own way. Grace Scofield, what say you? I don't mind them. Don't get me wrong. I don't like bugs. I don't like the constant buzzing, swatting, whatever. But I also like to just enjoy being outside. So I will eat and drink outside. A nice little backyard barbecue where you're all eating outside is great. You know, but I find that when I have a can of like Diet Coke specifically, I'm bound to get a wasp in it. Mm. So it's Mm -hmm. like if I'm drinking a Diet Coke outside, I know I'm going to have to like dump three quarters of it down the drain because there will be a wasp in my drink at some point during the day. It's about to be that season too. Things are about to really ramp up on the wasp front. Yes. They get yep. real they get real finicky around August 15th or so. Let's bring in Corinne Van Dusen. Corinne, I know you like getting outside from time to time, but do the wasps and bees and mosquitoes dissuade you? Yes, they do. And actually this weekend uh, I was at the cottage and it's a sweet spot in August for like no very low mosquitoes because of what the weather's like and and the wind and stuff. But that's when the uh, the wasps and the hornets come out, and uh, I find they're very persistent, like to 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 be around you. Mm-hmm, so even mm-hmm. if you do swat them away, they come right back. Oh, that makes an extra angry. Yeah, I thought, oh, the audacity of these these wasp thinking that I would. <laughs> give them anything and there was a few drinks that had to be poured out because uh you come back after um you know walking away from the table and there's a wasp doing the backstroke and enjoying whatever Mm -hmm. drink Mm -hmm. you poured for yourself so yeah it does it does dissuade me from eating outside because you don't want to get stung but um yeah, so yes, there you go. The answer is yes. Yeah, they do find a way to get into those cups and go for a little bit of a swim. I'll never forget Ottawa Folk Fest in the fall of 2012. I was hanging out and I was watching John K. Sampson of Weaker Than's fame and a couple of bees flew into my adult beverage that I was drinking at the time and I reacted a little bit um, frantically as is my as is my wakes. I don't like bees. I don't like wasps. And I And I kind of gestured upwards with my cup and sent beer flying everywhere with the bee in the beer uh, falling on a small child walking right by me. And uh, the kid looked up and said, hey! And the mother turned around and said, leave that nice man alone. And I didn't have the heart to tell the mother that I just spilled a bunch of beer on her kid with potentially a bee on it. So that goes back to Dave Brown being a coward, which we uh, know all too well on the show. Corinne, thank you for this. Thank you. That's Corinne Van Dusen. At AMI-audio is where you find us on Twitter. Accessible Media Inc. is where you find us on Facebook. Let's go back to Grace Scofield. She has the National Weather Update. Thanks, Dave. Here's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. We start off in St. John's, Newfoundland, where it's mainly cloudy with a 60% chance of showers or drizzle this morning that'll clear up this afternoon with a high of 25 degrees. In Halifax, it's mainly sunny today, with a high of 25 degrees. In Montreal, mainly sunny today, with a high of 27 degrees. In Ottawa, it's sunny, with a high of 27 degrees. In Toronto today, a mix of sun and cloud, with a high of 27 degrees. 
Over in Thunder Bay, it's cloudy, but that will clear up late this afternoon with a high of 22 degrees. Over in Winnipeg, Manitoba, it's mainly cloudy with a 30% chance of showers this morning with a risk of a thunderstorm and a high of 28 degrees. In Saskatoon, it's sunny today with a high of 28 degrees. In Calgary, Alberta, it's mainly sunny and there's a heat warning in effect today with a high of 28 degrees. In Edmonton, Alberta, it's nice and sunny today with a high of 27 degrees. Up in Yellowknife, it's sunny, becoming a mix of sun and cloud this afternoon with a high of 25 degrees. In Vancouver, BC, it's sunny, becoming a mix of sun and cloud this afternoon with a high of 25 degrees. And in Victoria, BC, it's sunny, becoming a mix of sun and cloud this afternoon with a high of 24 degrees. And that was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Grace. Coming up after the break, telecom company TELUS has asked for authorization to charge a fee for people who pay their bill with the credit card. Michelle McQuig of the Canadian Press will take a look at that story. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's a Monday edition of the show, which means we welcome back Canadian Press Weekend News Editor Michelle McQuig to discuss a few stories that emerged over the weekend. Hey, good morning, Michelle. Hello, Dave. So, Michelle, let's start with a story that relates to disability. Some numbers came out in regard to enrollment in autism therapy programs in Ontario. What do these numbers look like exactly? Well, uh, my colleague Allison Jones got some interesting figures here. So, Long-time listeners of the show will remember that autism services in Ontario have been a really hot-button issue for a long time. Oof, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a serious political hot potato. Various administrations have grappled with this, none of which have been able to really land on a winning formula. Um, the Conservatives had a program all set up in 2019. It encountered waves of protests. They scrapped it. Uh, they set up a whole new system, and they were hoping to have about 8,000 kids enrolled in core therapies by the fall. So far, they have enrolled 888. That's the number that's come out. And they, and yet they still maintain that they're right on track to reach that 8,000 goal by the fall. They say mm-hmm. they expect enrollments to, to start growing exponentially, is the word they used, in the coming months, and that things are really on track. Uh, but certainly, they're only about 10% of the way to their current goal. Michelle, you mentioned the 2019 program that was largely going to be giving families cash for programs yep. as opposed to necessarily offering programs. So, so I know some advocates have already said that created a bit of a distrust, but are there any theories on why these numbers may be so low considering there are still some significant waiting lists out there? Well, that honestly is the primary theory is that because that's the other issue too, is that the, the numbers are quite low and there's also been limited uptake in, in the core services program that the, that the government is currently touting. And advocates are saying that that is the reason why that the parents uh, who are primarily responsible for enrolling their kids in these things. These are programs aimed at children, it's worth noting, um, are, are, are very mistrustful of the government and don't expect that these programs will necessarily work or that the 
not that the therapies won't work per se, but that the government funding initiatives won't won't uh, come through the way they hope. What happened in 2019 is the context there was that the government was saying they were they were going to offer either families five thousand or twenty thousand dollars cash uh, to help pay for certain therapies based on a kid's age. Uh, when you consider that therapies can run upwards of $90,000, families were saying that the, the amounts being offered were nowhere near enough and that, uh, that those decisions should be based on need rather than age. Mm-hmm. So that was the sort of core issue at the heart of the revamp of the program that came through. And uh, this is why I think this has become such a a fraught issue because we've mm-hmm. been, like I said, we've been through this, not just with this current administration, the previous liberal government also had a, a real struggle oh, yeah. with this file. Oh, for so, sure. Yeah. When, when, yeah. when this, when the finger pointing is solely at the conservatives on this one, it's, it's not, it's not fair because there was, no, it's they, not. they inherited, yeah. they inherited a wait list of tens of thousands of people needing service. So uh, they, they, they did try to put a solution forward. just one that wasn't particularly good. I can think of for sure two premieres, possibly even three. I don't recall all the details of the McGinty era um, and how this file played out there, but this has definitely been a long, long standing issue spanning multiple governments. Mm-hmm. Michelle, let's move so over to over the federal public service and some concerns raised over language requirements. What are the concerns being raised here? Yeah, so my colleague Stephanie Taylor in Ottawa got her got her hands on an interesting memo through access to information laws. Uh, there's been some discussion going on. No actual movement here. So please don't ex- hear, listen to this and think that any change is imminent here. But what's been happening is there's been a lot of discussion going on around language exemptions for public servants who already speak an Indigenous language. Uh, the push here is to exempt them from current rules, which stipulate that Many public servants have to speak English and French. Certainly there are English, there's laws on the books that require federal services to be available in English and French. Um, They're saying that servants who speak an indigenous language should theoretically have a blanket exemption from having to learn French if they already have an indigenous language. Uh, The argument follows that there is value in being able to offer services in indigenous languages, uh, that there's opportunities to train in French if you want to. And uh, this is the kind of conversation that's been happening now. And in fact, there were some recommendations along those lines that have come out, but there is no immediate plan to move on anything like this. That said, uh, the whole issue has gotten a lot more attention since the appointment of Mary Simon as the governor general. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of you might remember that she uh, <clears throat> speaks an Inuit language and English, but does not speak French. She attended a federal day school as a child where she was explicitly forbidden from learning French, even though she was growing up in Quebec. Um, so people are, are are seeing her case as an example of the kind of exemption that could and should be possible. Michelle, going beyond the exemption, I did see there were some talks about some other solutions being put forward. What what are some of what are some of the suggestions being made here? Uh, an interesting one that's been actually that has been formally floated as a recommendation to the government is to start. There's currently a, a, a small bonus available for people who do speak both languages. I think it's eight hundred dollars a year. And the, one of the recommendations put forward right now is to extend that kind of bonus to people who speak an Indigenous language, even if they don't speak French, uh, which would effectively uh, send a message of, of more equity in terms mm-hmm. of language recognition and, and the value placed on those languages. So that's one of the more concrete steps that's being recommended right now and, and probably the, the simplest one to uh to unpack and and Mm. possibly to implement even. Michelle, let's finish on a story that emerged midday on Friday. TELUS has asked for authorization to charge fees to customers who pay their bill with a credit card. What's the argument they're making here? 
Well, there is some complexity to this one, and I have oh, to. Oh yes, oh yes. I have to cop to this right here. You might know more about the background than me. There was a class action suit that was resolved in 2017, and the the fallout from it is only becoming clear now because it had to work its way through a bunch of regulatory approvals. Um, but this class action suit was setting limits on what fees banks and credit cards could charge. So. This is where I don't have all the necessary background. I did not cover this lawsuit. I didn't even know this lawsuit existed until I read this story on Friday, to be completely honest with you. Um, but what's happened there is that now that companies and, and credit card companies have a chance to recoup some of those costs, they are charging more for processing fees. And companies like TELUS are now proposing that they're going to start charging a surcharge for using a credit card to make your payments. So mm. effectively, you're, you'd be paying to pay in a certain method. <laughs> in TELUS's case, um, you're looking, they're proposing a, a 1.5%, I believe, surcharge. Uh, if anyone wants to pay their bill off with a credit card, they're saying you can mitigate that cost that they calculate would amount to about two bucks a month. They're saying you could mitigate that if you chose to pay through a different method, like a direct online payment. Um, or, or Pre-authorized, you know, pre-authorized yeah, payments exactly. your bank accounts as well, that kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. So methods other than a credit card payment, they're saying would, would allow you to sort of circumvent that potential surcharge. Uh, but because this lawsuit has been resolved now, uh, we are potentially going to have to see more companies going this route and implementing surcharges in order to process credit card payments. Yeah, as, as you point out, it's not uncommon for credit card companies to take a, a transactional percentage on any kind of deal they process. Um, Visa and MasterCard are a little bit lower, but companies like Amex, American Express, charge a little bit more. And it's starting to become a little more common to either have places not accept credit cards or, off, or hit you with these kind of surcharges. I know one of the mm-hmm. utilities that I pay every month, my hydro bill, if I want to use my credit card, I get hit with a surcharge on that one too. So this one isn't necessarily uncommon. It's certainly something that's emerging and becoming more common. Uh, this question is probably a bit predictable, Michelle, but how are people reacting to this news? I spent some time in the comment section with this and uh, people weren't you pleased. You don't say, wow, Dave, I never saw that coming. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, people are... are, are on principle, a lot of people fundamentally object to the notion of paying for paying. Uh, So the surcharge is is not necessarily being very well received. Uh, It's interesting to see how it's going to go. And and one thing I should point out is that when people are doing this, there are now going to be rules that people have to follow. If there is going to be a surcharge, apparently it has to be clearly advertised and very clearly itemized on the receipt. So you should be able to track fairly easily whether or not you are paying a surcharge by using a credit card. but we're going to see this practice happening more yeah. often. So we'll see how well those rules actually get applied. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, on that one for sure. Michelle, thank Michelle, you for this. We appreciate it. We'll talk to you on Friday for the news panel. Sounds good, Dave. Have a good week. That is Michelle McQuig, the weekend news editor at the Canadian press coming up next accessibility specialist. Thea Curdy will discuss the necessity and standards for accessible hotel accommodations. But first here is Canadian press reporter, Emily Javesky with your morning business minutes. The Canadian Real Estate Association is expected to release home sales figures for July today, while Statistics Canada is due to release its monthly survey of manufacturing for June. North American markets enjoyed a broad-based rally on Friday. The S&P TSX Composite Index closed up 188 points at 20,180. In New York, the Dow Jones was up 424 points at 33,761. 
In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei climbed 325 points to 28,872. Hong Kong's Hang Seng, just ahead of close, is down about 93 points at 20,083. And our dollars trading overseas this morning at 77.93 cents US, compared with 78.23 cents on Friday. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Emily Jovesky. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Summer traveling season, it's almost over, but it's still in full swing. Even before you get to your destination and get to your hotel, it's worth asking has your accommodation been designed to be inclusive? As we've talked about so many times, there are multiple considerations to ensure a hotel is inclusive. Let's bring in accessibility specialist and the president of Designable Environments, Thea Curdy, to talk about this a bit more. Hey, good morning, Thea. Good morning, Dave. So, Thea, let's、uh, start with something of, I suppose, a self evident question, but who needs accessible hotel rooms? <laughs> It does sound like a basic question. <laughs> And to your point, there's still three weeks of, of summer left. So, let's not rush it. So, I know it feels like we've turned the corner here, but there's still lots of time to get away. And getting away to a hotel is often、um, the choice many of us are,、um, you know, make. We can't, don't all, all have family everywhere that we want to go. So, your question about, you know, who needs accessible hotel rooms actually is an interesting one because most people think it's just a few people, but actually, it's anyone and everyone. Hotel guests with disabilities can range from, of course, parents, working professionals, children and teens, young adults, et cetera,、um, and then anyone, of course, that you know in your family or in your workplace. Um, but as I and many others like to remind policymakers and stakeholders, it's not just access as a human rights issue protected under the Canadian Charter and Human Rights Code for disabled people. And it's not a small percentage. It actually benefits with these accommodations 100% of us. If you think about it, all of us are born with a disability or get. One or at least one <laughs>、uh, during our lives due to illness, accident, or aging. And the lack of ac- accessible hotel rooms makes it difficult for people、uh, to go on business trips, attend conferences or weddings or ceremonies, or be tourists、uh, or visit theme parks、uh, and other types of tourist attractions. I think that you've heard me talk about hashtag purple dollar before, which is talking about the economic benefit of accessibility and inclusive accommodations for our economies.、Um, and unfortunately, that's been way overlooked. And then, of course, if you have a Paralympic event or a para sport event happening in your city,、um, there's going to be large groups of people with disabilities traveling together. Mm-hmm. And the types of percentages we see in most accommodations just really aren't thinking about that at all. So, with the Accessible Canada Act in place, trying to make the country accessible by 2040, there's a whole lot more we could be doing. And you know what? Every hotel room should be visible to people with disabilities so that non disabled people who are staying in a hotel can have a disabled friend、mm-hmm. uh, come and stay or visit them in their room. So, let, let's talk about some of the percentages and numbers there because so many hotels love to put on their website, oh, we're an accessible hotel. And then you get there. And there are all kinds of barriers you might face staircases going up to elevators, elevators that are too small for mobility devices, accessible rooms where the toilet is in a corridor where you absolutely could not get a mobility device in there. So, how common are a fully accessible hotel rooms? 
So first of all, accessible hotel experience is obvious a lot more than just what the built environment is, or of course the room itself. Uh, but that's my area of specialty. Mm -hmm. So and, and as we have a limited time, I'm going to focus on that today. So I appreciate the question. Um, sadly, it's very rare, as you mentioned, We and, and you'll see why when we talk about the building code in a minute. Most hotels, as you said, have um, a handful of accessible rooms, and everybody's got a different uh, definition. Um, if you actually, if you search for accessible hotel standards, you're not going to find any one industry standard that people are prescribing to. Um, and, and as you said, accessibility means uh, different things, which of course means it's also then the experience of the user that is not consistent or predictable, or even maybe even accessible at all, as you said, there are stairs in the way between you and the elevator. Um, so I did find some hotels that are advertising uh, their accessibility features. Uh, one of them here in Toronto has a fully modified accessible room and also a modified accessible room, which was interesting to read the differences. And then one in Vancouver, which was talking about the accessibility features they have, which is really, uh, I mean, great, but very insufficient to what we actually need. You mentioned building code, and so many times our conversations go there. What does the building code have to say about accessibility features in a hotel room or in a hotel? Well, that's one of the problems that we're experiencing is that accessibility in a building very much depends on when the hotel was built. Right, uh, because the, the when they're building the building, they we are used to thinking about they build to what the building code requires. Um, if from an accessibility standpoint, we tend to think about the the minimum that's required by building code, as opposed to the required uh, equality that, uh, from the Canadian Charter and the Human Rights Code. So unfortunately, older hotels are not accessible, and our building codes don't require them to upgrade. So you would only find the latest accessibility requirements in the newest buildings. Um, so what's required in a building and what's required by Human Rights Code, as I said, was changed in the, uh, or, or the Human Rights Code was changed 40 years ago, but our building code wasn't changed that long ago. So we haven't seen the types of accommodations, so we're seeing a real limitation. In the National Building Code, there's no mention of hotels uh, specifically to the number of uh, rooms that have to be accessible for guests. Um, the Ontario Building Code, which does have some significantly better requirements that are still deficient um, does have some things, but what we're worried about is that there's been an announcement that the, uh, the, the governments intend to harmonize by 2040 all of our building codes to the National Building Code. So places like Ontario where we have better things, we're scared about losing that. Um, a suite is defined as, as you might expect, as a part of what we, they call the rooms for hotels and boarding houses. So if you're looking them up, it's classified as a a major occupancy group C, which is important, again, if you're involved with any policy stuff, mm -hmm. what are these things called? There's lots of stuff about safety issues for fire, but there's really nothing in the National Building Code. Now, if we move to um, even in the washroom section, it says that there has to be the transfer space. There's no turn space required. And it actually has some really weird language about the exemptions and the way to describe it, which I think most disabled people will find very disturbing to read. In Ontario, as I said, while they do have better accessibility, like they require 10% of hotel rooms to be accessible, they also have say that if a hotel is not required to provide more than 20 rooms. 
Um, and unfortunately, as people with disabilities know, you can't reserve a room. Uh, you can ask for a room, but you can't reserve it. It's on a first come, first serve basis. So uh, in the building code, you know, you have to have a power door operator. I haven't seen that anywhere yet because that's new buildings, not old buildings. You have to have lower peepholes for a seated uh, position or for someone who's shorter. I haven't seen that anywhere either. Neither have um, I. I haven't seen that at yeah. all. Yeah, exactly. So there's stuff in the building code, but we haven't seen it yet. So we'd only see that in brand new. And I guess I haven't been anywhere brand new. <laughs> we're not. Uh, we're not. We're not fancy and bougie like that. The. Uh... <laughs> well, after COVID, maybe we haven't yeah, been maybe. traveling as much. As <laughs> yeah, fair. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> so. Uh, so the AODA doesn't mention um, uh, in Ontario, the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act, it doesn't mention hotels either. Um, and uh, there are places we could find improvements elsewhere in the world. So the Americans with Disabilities Act has a transient lodging section, which includes hotels, motels, all that kinds of stuff. Uh, in the EU, since 2015, they've been required to include accessibility standards. I don't know what that includes, but I do have uh, links to more resources, of course. And the International Standards Organization has a brand new 2021 standard that our uh, standards could be looking at. It's called 21902 tourism and related services. So there, there's lots that we could be doing to improve our building codes without having to sort of think outside the box. Although thinking outside the box is a lot of fun. Yeah, let's do that. Let's actually open up the box and do some of that thinking because that's where your perspective is so valuable, Thea. What are some things that hotels and designers should be considering to make the experience more usable for a visitor with a disability? Oh man, there's a lot because the types of disabilities is far more than just a wheelchair mm -hmm, user, as mm -hmm. you know. So this was a lot of fun actually uh, to be thinking. This is an opportunity for innovation and creativity, really. And it was a lot of fun preparing for this show because I got to sort of just sit there and think and and do some research. Um, so if we started just with the door, when you get to the room, you want to have color contrast of the frame of the door, the door itself, and the lever hardware to make it easy to see and use. You want consistent place for the signage identifying the room with color contrast and braille that's always placed on, beside the handle side of the door on the wall. You need to have um, locks. You know, how they get those cards now? We don't get keys anymore. You get a card and you have to try to sl slide it into this little tiny slot. Oh, it's brutal. Uh, you want a proximity card that just unlocks as you wave the card at it would be much better. I haven't seen power door operators, as I said, which are required, but you want them to be activated with the lock. So when you pass the lock in front of it, the door just opens. Wouldn't that be great? Um, things like having a door knocker and a door bell, which makes a distinctive ding-dong recognizable noise, and then lights that flash inside the room for people who are deaf so that they know that somebody's at the door. Um, having multiple height peepholes, so not just a lowered one, but a regular standing height one and then a lower one as well. Soundproofing of the door would be amazing. Oh, Soundproofing yes, please. The walls. Yes, please. <laughs> I've been woken up so many times. Having a coat closet that has coat rods that could be adjusted to different heights. So just having diff different supports, you can pop the rod out and lower it if you needed to. Uh, cabinet hardware that can be operated with a closed fist. Um, making sure that you have a safe 
safe reach uh, or sorry, reach for the safe within the closet um, and controls that are operable to close fits and large buttons. Um, for blind hotel guests, you want to make sure that the path of travel is clear of obstructions like trash cans and coffee tables. Um, and the barrier free path of travel within the room not only has to have the clear width for an assistive device, but also the turning space and storage when you're not using the assistive device. And most of them don't have that. Uh, in fact, if your decorations or furniture allow for flexible and movement, then you can rearrange the room as your individual needs uh, require. In the washroom, again, we said they don't have turn spaces. That's ridiculous. We need to have that. Uh, slip resistant tile is very important. An emergency call from the in the bathroom so that if you fall and you're on the floor or you're on the toilet and having an emergency or fallen in the shower, um, you know, have to have uh, access to that. A raised toilet seat that so that shorter people can use the regular seat or transfer from their equipment, but people who are having trouble with their hips uh, can have a portable raised toilet seat uh, that is delivered to the room, just like extra pillows or extra blankets could be. So there's a ton of things. In fact, I've got a whole other page here I don't have time to get to. <laughs> well, Thea, that, yeah, we're a little tight for time here. So, so are there any other resources available or maybe we can direct people to your social media where I'm sure you're going to post some of this stuff? Right. So I have four resources, one from the ADA, um, one from TripAdvisor from 2011, which points out accessibility is not standardized, as we said. Um, and then there's a wheelchairtravel.org um, website that's got a, they created a matrix measuring hotel accessibility from 2017 by John Morris that I think is brilliant and I'd love people to look at. So again, we always encourage folks to check out your social media. I know on Twitter, it's at uh, T Curdy, T-K-U-R-D-I. And of course, the folks can find you on LinkedIn. They can look for designable environments uh, because you're always up to something good. So along those lines, Thea, any upcoming events you want to highlight for us? Sure. I'm not doing anything, thankfully, in August. Wow, Thea, break. taking a little break. Good for you. <laughs> I know. Think about that. Um, but um, I am a part of the International Accessibility Professionals Organization, or the IAAP, and they're doing a network and learn session that's coming up on August 18th to understand what being a certified accessibility specialist is and how to become that, that many people might be interested in. On August 31st, there's a, a webinar that's happening at Cornell University online um, called Strides in Recreation Accessibility, um, and it's about viewing recreation uh, and the application of the ADA and what's working and what's been forgotten off, uh, often. Um, but the biggest news for upcoming things for me is that you guys have asked me to come back for a third year here with the Now with Dave Brown show, so I'm really excited to tell everybody. Well, there you go. We're, we were super thrilled to hear that you're coming back on board, Thea. You're one of our absolute favorites. You always give us such great perspective. We always thank you for your time because we know you are so busy, but enjoy a little bit of a uh, more laid-back August. Have yourself a great day. Thanks, you too, Dave. That's Thea Curdy, the president of Designable Environments. Let's bring in Corinne Van Dusen for the big business story of the day. Corinne, what caught your eye out there in the world of business this morning? Well, we're going to talk about movies because the head of Canada's largest movie theater chain is betting on a comeback for romantic comedies, biopics, and other mid-budget Films. Cineplex CEO Ellis Jacob made the prediction as the company reported its first quarter profit since the beginning of the pandemic. Jacob refers to the popularity of Baz Luhrmann's Elvis as a sign of what he hopes is coming. And despite relatively modest budget of $85 million, the film especially managed to draw in older viewers mm -hmm. who have been reluctant to return to theaters. 
Yeah. So it looks like that uh, August um, multiplex people needing to get out of the heat, sit in the dark for a few hours is, has officially almost come back. <laughs> yeah, a chance to get away from the wasps and the bees that are going to try yeah. to sting you outside. <laughs> they can't get you inside the movie theater. Unsurprising that uh, movies like Elvis perhaps brought back a few of those older film goers. We know Top Gun Maverick obviously has been an absolute monster for the cinemas. But yeah, we're talking about those mid-tier films that are dropping. Even a bullet train was uh, number one for the second weekend in a row. Maybe a little bit underwhelming on the box office front, but still showing that people are making their way back out to the theater for certain kinds of films, especially of that mid-tier variety, the Elvises, the bullet trains, etc. So yeah, I think that's I think that's a fair observation. And I know the folks at Cineplex, I've been talking to a bunch of the employees and my visits down there. They're uh, very happy to see people back in the cinema. So very, very cool on that front. Corinne, we got to go, but thank you for this. Thank you. That is Corinne Van Dusen. She'll be back for the regional news update in a couple of minutes. But coming up next, Amy Amanti has a review of the Netflix romance film Purple Hearts. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's a Monday edition of AMI at the Movies, which means that film reviewer Amy Amanti stops by the show. Amy has a review of the Netflix film Purple Hearts. Hey, good morning, Amy. Hey, good morning, Dave. So, Amy, this one has been trending quite hard on Netflix, as a lot of romantic films tend to. Mm -hmm. What's it about? Well, it's, as you say, trending quite hard. It's in the top 10 list, or it has been in the week it was released, which was just recently. Um, so in Purple Hearts, we meet an aspiring musician named Cassie, and um, she's uh, she's experiencing some medical uh, complications. And uh, in order to get herself some medical insurance, she marries a U.S. Marine named Luke. And... Um, there's a bit of controversy, of course, as they try and hide this fake marriage um, from fans and friends and family, because as you may know, in the States, this is a highly illegal proposition. And of course, the two of them don't like each other to begin with. Oh, dear. So, yeah, I mean, will romance ensue? Wow. Okay. So the fake marriage of two folks who don't even like each other, but a little health insurance action to get everybody involved in this mix. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this movie is adapted from a book of the same name. You mentioned there might be some real world hot button issues, but are there any actual real world connections? I would say that this is probably a, a well-known story. You know, this is not, this is not the first time this has happened on a TV uh, movie, right? This is probably something that's happened many times um, because, you know, if you are experiencing uh, a need for health insurance, um, gosh, like I don't want to throw the states under the bus here, but technically, you know, because they don't have no, a social throw them medical under the system. Bus. Throw them under their yeah, bus. It's immoral. Because they don't have a social medical system, you're put in tough positions. And I think sometimes people make bad choices because they're in situations that they can't get themselves out of. So this is maybe not necessarily a story taken verbatim. There's always um, artistic um, influence in pieces like this, but, uh, but this is certainly not an unheard of case. So let's go back to the film itself. Who are the stars mm -hmm. and how were the performances? 
Okay, so the cast uh, includes Sophia Carson, who is playing Cassie. Uh, and Cassie is um, uh, our, our musician that is kind of struggling at the moment uh, in her musical career. But also um, the, the actor Sophia is a Disney rise to fame uh, star. Okay. Disney, young okay. Disney star. And to be honest with you, I don't know many of the young Disney stars because, well... I don't watch some of the young Disney content. <laughs> well, it, it, it's fair that we'd be a little bit disconnected, right? That maybe the Selena Gomez and Demi Lovato era That's is probably right. our last era. And even then, it's kind of a stretch. Yeah. And and Sophia is just sort of a, a rising star, I would call her. So she's not sort of as mainstream. And this, I think, particular film, and we can talk about this later, was meant to kind of catapult her career a little bit. Um, but also, we've got uh, Nicholas uh, Galitzane. Who plays who plays Luke, who is our our U.S. Marine, who's also experiencing some some of his own mental troubles. So in this film, some of the medical issues that we're referring to for Cassie is that she's a type one diabetic. How did you feel the portrayal of type one diabetes was handled in this film? Well, considering that I am a type one diabetic, diagnosed at the age of five. Um, I know a lot about type one diabetes and I know a lot about, um, how it's portrayed in terms of film and, and media, even stage, but also even how it is portrayed in our news feeds and how, uh, wrong people get the difference between type one and type two. So in this one, you know, I was, I was quite excited to see representation of diabetes. And then all of a sudden, um, you know, some of the first things were right. And then, it kind of went very wrong for me. And so, you know, Cassie has this, this um, attack and all of the symptoms that she has exhibits what a person like myself would exhibit when we are experiencing a low blood sugar. And just so folks know, whether you're really low or really high, both can uh, result in death, uh, coma and death. Um, so she was experiencing a low blood sugar. And of course, in this film, they expressed that as a high blood sugar and had her giving herself insulin, which of course, if you were to exhibit somebody doing this in real life, you would definitely kill them by injecting insulin. So I thought that was, uh, I thought that was devastatingly inaccurate yeah, and could have severe consequences. That's a misstep for sure in pop culture mm -hmm. to be making, to be making And it's happened many so times. Okay. Yeah, many so times. beyond that backlash from you, there's also been some other backlash the film's been facing despite its popularity. What's why is it facing that black backlash? Is it, is it simply the, the the case of hitting the social the social hot button issue of of healthcare? Uh, I, I think maybe that's part of it. But one of the things that I, and I'm going to read a, a quote that was pulled I think from a Twitter field a feed that says purple calling it purple hearts purple hearts is hyping up sorry people are hyping up purple hearts as some kind of cutesy romantic you know, American military movie, but it has a lot of American military propaganda um, that is not subtle. So in this, they, they have uh, the soldiers that are cheering about hunting Arabs, um, that they are making racist remarks that only our main character, uh, Cassie, recognizes. Um, but the man that the men around her are never changing their political views. So they're, they're talking about, in general, some people are talking about the over uh, overemphasized racism that's not addressed, um, some of the military propaganda that is very overt in this. And of course, you know, this love story that's happening between this really right-winged Republican uh, style military dude, essentially, and Cassie, who's very much a liberal um, 
and and how the two of them can possibly come together and the sort of the make belief around that. Um, so I you know I think I think consensus, even though it's been one of the most highly watched movies, is that it's not really worth the time. <laughs> what okay, Amy? You watched it. I haven't watched it. I'm not. I going, I'm not going to watch it. I'm not really big on the romance films. Um, in in terms of that backlash, would you say that was satire that was on the nose, but but didn't actually offer commentary, or do you think that was actually deliberate in the way that they just had these sort of unchallenged racism? That's a darn good question. I when I watched it, I didn't think that it was satire. That wasn't my first my first impression. My first impression was that they were trying to make a statement about how diametrically opposite these two individuals were. Um, that sort of is the, the, you know, the container is the healthcare issue. And uh, the story is that these two people are absolutely uh, opposites of each other, but still happen to find love. As we're showing pictures of them, you know, kissing and whatnot, I think the cat's out of the bag, that, uh, that they, they, they eventually find love with each other. Um, through all adversity. So I don't think that it's satirical. I think that it is, you know, we need to have, we need to have characters that are, are villainized to have good conflict, but I think there wasn't enough recognition within the character. There wasn't a character arc where, where the characters that were, were racist and um, overly racist, I guess, weren't um, recognizing that. And we want to see that kind of character arc. How was the audio description? Audio description was as great as the film. <laughs> okay. So it was lacking for me. It had no diversity description in it because also, you know, our our character Cassie is of a, a, a Latina background. So, you know, I, I wouldn't have known that um, unless I had done some digging to find out what the background was of the character. So I, I think that that's a misstep as well. I want another representation, especially in a context like this, where it becomes really important. Of course, she's maybe... Um, feeling, not maybe, obviously feeling more um, impacted by racism than these white military dudes who aren't thinking about it. I think you may have just given it away there, but how would you rate this out of 10? What did you, th- what did you actually think of the film? You know, it's very similar to me as a Hallmark movie, and I'm not a big fan of the Hallmark movies. Sorry, Hallmark. They're overly cheesy for me. I couldn't even <laughs> A bunch of my friends one. who work in the industry will be very hurt by that statement, but that's okay. I, I know. Listen, if, <laughs> if, I, if I got a, a role in a Hallmark movie, I'd probably take it. I really would. You know, um, Amy, as I offer you that criticism, I just said I don't like romance movies myself. So I'm, I'm you know, put me in that club as well. There's a there's a, a level to romance movies that are tolerable and a level that are overly cheesy and you wonder why you wasted your time watching it. And for this one, I I, I didn't even give it a number, Dave. I just I I I don't I don't think people should really bother. Wow, I really don't. waste of time. That is harsh criticism from Amy and Manti. Holy Ouch. smokes, uh, Amy. Thank you for this. Have a nice week. You're welcome. That's Amy and Manti, film reviewer in Vancouver, BC. You can also. Uh, find her podcast, Accessing Art with Amy. Let's wrap up the hour with a couple of news stories. Coming back to a clip from Friday that didn't maybe get as much press as it deserved this weekend, Quebec Premier Francois Legault is promising to build thousands of new social and affordable housing units if he is re-elected this fall. The leader of the Coalition, Coalition Avenir Quebec promised to build 11,000 new units in the next four years if the party wins a second term on October the 3rd. Legault says the COVID pandemic led to delays in construction and caused the need for housing to be spread across the province. With the, the pandemic and the a new way of working at home uh, needs are not only on the island of Montreal. There are needs in Laval. There are needs about everywhere in Quebec. 
yeah, there was some analysis came, coming out yesterday that suggested the actual highest housing prices in Quebec are in Gatineau, right across the uh, river from Ottawa. And one more news story for you. It's from the world of international politics. Another U.S. congressional delegation is in Taiwan. Less than two weeks after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit prompted days of military exercises by China, reporter Andy Field has the latest. Despite China's military threats and exercises, another bipartisan congressional delegation flew to Taiwan for meetings with that island nation's leadership. The trip led by Democrat Ed Markey and America Samoa's Republican representative discussing security and trade. Chinese warplanes have continued their aggressive exercises in the Taiwan Strait even after they officially ended last Wednesday. Reducing tensions in the Taiwan Strait and investments in Taiwan's semiconductor industry are expected to be key topics of discussion with the five-member American delegation. That's all the time we have for the first hour of the show. After the break, Corinne Van Dusen will be back with the regional news update. Jeff Ryman will stop by for a sports chat. Grace will have your weather, and I'll have your tech trends. You don't want to go anywhere, because now with Dave Brown, we'll be right back after this very short break. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. I'm Dave Brown. It's Monday, August the 15th, 2022. Coming up in the second hour of the show, Dave Thompson will share details about an upcoming job fair hosted by the Richmond Center for Disability. And Mark Aflalo will be here. He'll tell you about tech company Ericsson and their belief that a holistic approach to deployment can keep energy. Let's begin the hour by handing things over. Thanks, Dave. Starting in British Columbia, where the wildfire service predicting more stable weather this week. Spokesperson Brianna Hill says rising temperatures and less conviction are expected, and which means much less lightning activity for forca- is forecasted this week. This comes following nearly 1,800 lightning strikes between Wednesday and Saturday, which caused more than 100 fires to ignite across the province. Hill says the service was well-prepared and 69% of all those ignited by the strikes were classified as out, under control, or being held as of last night. The Canadian Coast Guard says five people were rescued after a 58-foot fishing vessel near San Juan Island sank this weekend. Michelle and Beau, a spokesperson for the agency, says the vessel is now more than 100 feet deep and is polluting the water. She says the U.S. Coast Guard is taking the lead on the situation as it occurred in their waters. She says the Canadian Coast Guard also working closely with the U.S. and is ready to respond and assist as needed. Moving to the prairies, where Alberta Premier Jason Kenney has called an idea proposed by a candidate for the United Conservative leadership race, quote, nuts. Kenney was on his province-wide radio show on CHED and CHQR on Saturday when he was asked for his opinion of the Alberta Sovereignty Act, which has been proposed by Danielle Smith. Smith has said if she wins, she will bring in a bill this fall to give Alberta the power to ignore federal laws and court rulings deemed not in the province's interest. Kenny has so far declined to pick a favorite in the race to succeed him, but summed up the idea as a proposal for Alberta to basically ignore and violate the Constitution in a way unprecedented in Canadian history. Smith chastised Kenny in a statement yesterday for interference in the leadership contest, saying his comments were ill-informed and disrespectful to the large and growing majority of UCP members that support the initiative. 
Duty-free shops along Canada's border, like the one in Emerson, Manitoba, are continuing to report record low sales. Michael Reich, the owner of the Emerson Duty-Free Shop, says business has been the worst in decades since he's been open. Frontier Duty-Free Association believes government hurdles like the Arrive Can app and vaccination requirements discourage tourists from crossing the border, and they're calling for Ottawa to scrap the app. Launched in November 2020, the Arrive Can app aimed to reduce the spread of COVID-19 by ensuring arrivals were double vaccinated and facilitating contact tracing. But it's been criticized for not being user-friendly, and last month, the union representing border services agents estimated some 30% of border crossers haven't completed it. In Ontario, the latest national rent report shows the cost of renting in Ontario rose more than almost every other province across the country last month. The report, released last week by Rentals.ca and Bullpen Research and Consulting, shows rents in Ontario experienced a 3.1% monthly increase in July and a 15.2% increase annually. The new national analysis of online listings has found the province ranks second when it comes to the highest average rent price in July for all types of housing. The only province to surpass Ontario was British Columbia, with a 19% year-over-year increase. In Quebec, the province's Auditor General is releasing her review today of the Finance Minister's pre-election report on the province's finances. Galen Leclerc is tasked with determining whether the financial forecasts, estimates and assumptions made ahead of the October provincial election are plausible. Finance Minister Eric Girard will present his pre-election financial report later today after Leclerc releases her review. The purpose of Leclerc's review is to ensure that the party that wins the October 3rd election can't say it was surprised by an unexpected deficit or surplus after it takes office. Her report also gives all the political parties the same framework to work with when producing cost election platforms. In Atlantic Canada, the number of forest access roads in central Newfoundland have been open after a series of major forest fires kept them off limits to the public for two weeks. Province's Department of Fisheries, Forestry and Agriculture is now allowing local residents to use the roads to check on their seasonal cabins and campers. The roads in question are near Paradise Lake and Bay Despair Highway, otherwise known as Route 360. Highway remains open, but that is not the case for all forest access roads in the area. In the area. And Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and German Chancellor Olaf Scholz are set to sign a green energy agreement later this month in western Newfoundland. The German government has confirmed the agreement will be signed August 23rd in Stephenville. That's where a Newfoundland-based company plans to build a zero-emission plant that will use wind energy to produce hydrogen for export. Mayor of Stephenville, Tom Rose, says Trudeau and Schultz will be joined by cabinet ministers and a delegation of German business leaders who will also attend a green energy trade show. And those are your regional news headlines. Thank you very much, Corinne. Let's bring in Jeff Ryman for a sports chat. All right, Jeff, let's start with the feel-good. Team Latvia wins their first ever World Junior game last night with an upset win over Czechia. I think I've watched the clip about 10 times. There's nothing like pure sports joy. Yeah, it's all over the internet too, Dave, and I love it. Uh, Whenever it gets brought up, I have to watch it. It's just one of those feel-good moments. You could hear the players on Team Latvia screaming with joy. Like, this is like their Super Bowl. This is their gold medal game, essentially, winning their first ever uh, at the World Juniors. And this was a team that 
really wasn't supposed to even be at this, Dave. Uh, they were in the second division tournament, which is where Belarus won. But obviously, Belarus couldn't <laughs> couldn't participate in uh, this tournament, nor could Russia. Here comes Latvia, and they win a game. And they won it by a pretty marginal score, 5-2 uh, against Czechia. So it wasn't like it was a nail-biter of a game for Latvia. But just watching them celebrate after that win, Dave... Absolutely, like you said, pure joy. And it means they get a quarterfinal game. They'll be playing yep. uh, likely the Swedes. I believe it's the Swedes they'll be playing in the uh, second round, although there are some machinations based on outcomes of games today. But, uh, yeah, very exciting for uh, for Latvia to get that opportunity and continue their tournament. Bad news for Slovakia, a, t- a, a country that just had a bronze at the Olympics, had three players drafted in the first round of the NHL <laughs> draft. None of those three end up uh, playing for the team in this tournament that probably would have made some difference for them but a disappointing uh, going home for Slovakia after getting uh, getting wiped out by a couple teams along the way here including Finland and Canada and speaking of Finland and Canada those two teams going at it tonight 6 p.m eastern time in Edmonton this is the uh, first big test for Canada isn't it Jeff? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, actually, Latvia gave them a, a little bit of a test in their first game. You know, I think a lot of people... They gave them they a would, scare. They gave them a scare. Gave, I don't know if they gave them a test. It was also, you know, I think Canada trying to shake off a little bit of the rust. I mean, they're playing in the middle of the summer. I don't think many players are typically in peak condition in the middle of the summer in terms of uh, in-game condition, I should say. Um, but Finland, I mean, they've got a really, really good squad as well. Uh, Atu Rati, uh, who was a New York Islanders second round pick. That guy fell pretty far in the draft. At one point he was being considered potentially as the number one overall pick, uh, in 2021. And he has looked every bit of the part as a as a rising star. I mean, he had a great year in the Finnish uh, pro leagues, and he's continuing that trend here at the World Juniors. That that Finnish top line, yeah. uh, Ronnie Harovinen Hero, uh, and, and Joachim Kemmel, uh, looking really really good for for Team Finland. So they've got they definitely got the firepower up front. Uh, something to really watch out for. Uh, and obviously Canada, like we just mentioned. Got off to a bit of a slow start. Latvia gave them a little bit of a scare is what we're calling it. Uh, But ever since then, Dave, that offense has picked up. Mason McTavish, one of the guys that we've highlighted, uh, has looked really, really good. Um, That top line for Canada, again, tons of firepower. The skill is on display, too. I mean, Ken Johnson just has looked phenomenal. A couple of really nice moves early on. Then he gets the Michigan uh, last game and wraps it around and scores a highlight reel goal. Uh, just phenomenal stuff coming from uh, Team Canada as well. So this is going to be a, a pretty fun matchup, I'd say. Yeah, Joshua Roy of the Quebec Major Junior League has also been great in this tournament coming off a 100-point season in the QMJHL. So he's been really good for Canada. Yeah, these uh these these games they don't they don't feel like they have the usual stakes. You know, usually this kind of game would be the New Year's Eve game during the during the holiday version of the World Junior Tournament, which would often be a Canada USA or a Canada Russia or a Canada Sweden game. But I suppose we'll uh, settle for Canada Finland tonight, and that's that's pretty good. That's all right. I Jeff, it's yeah. you know it doesn't matter if they finish first in the division or not, right? It's actually pretty irrelevant where they finish in the division because all that matters is uh, come elimination time game. Game, which will crack which will which will crop up earlier this week or later this week yeah 
Yeah, I mean, that's usually how it is. Uh, you know, in this tournament specifically, it's usually Canada number one or number two. It doesn't really matter where you end up. You're going to have to, you know, um, put up or shut up essentially yeah. in the elimination yeah. game. Uh, so, I mean, these are just, uh, I wouldn't say warm-up games, Dave, but they they, they kind of have that, that feeling of just, you know, getting uh, all the kinks out of the system, shaking that rust off, and, uh, you know, trying to go forward in... in, in obviously make an elimination game and, and win a couple of elimination games and make it to that gold yeah. medal game. The whole tournament, um, the whole tournament, yeah, you're, you're, the whole tournament sort of lacked a little bit of urgency. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just, it, it, we, we touched on this before. I think with it being in the summer uh, and everything that's surrounding hockey, Canada has sort of dampened the mood quite a bit. Um, but yeah, uh, Canada versus Finland. It, it, this is this is a, a great game to watch, and I just don't know if it's going to get enough publicity. <laughs> but it, it really is. I mean, if, we, we talked about Slovakia and how they've had some really good players being drafted really high. Finland's always been there, but I feel like recently, I mean, like, they have some really, really good young players coming out of that country, and I think we're seeing it here uh, at this tournament, and it's on full display. Even a player like Brad Lambert, another one of these uh, Finnish players yeah. who slid during the course of the uh, the draft this past year, is, is still a good player who got taken late in the first round. So there's there's all kinds of good players on this Finnish team. It just, I don't know, yep. there's something lacking, and the ratings, by the way, have reflected that. The Team Canada games are averaging about 300,000 people uh, per, per viewing, which is way down. I think that the, the fact that this event's not happening around the holidays, let's be clear. Yeah. By the time December 26th or 27th rolls around, you're kind of done talking to your family. So it's nice to have a distraction. In the middle of August, <laughs> there's not a lot of forced family time upon you. So, you know, it's not uh, it's not quite as difficult. Uh, Jeff, I and, have to give you some... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, uh, it really is like a Canadian christmas tradition like uh, i was talking about this with some guys on the hockey team like we love like we live and breathe hockey but there's something about it and i think a part of that is you know waking up on boxing day right after christmas you're still excited you're on christmas holidays and you, you turn on hockey you yeah. turn on the world juniors yeah. and, and that's really a tradition i think a bunch of canadians have across the country and it's just not the same feeling in no. the middle of the summer no I, you also have to consider the fact the nhl season has gone longer the last couple of summers as well that we've been finishing things a couple weeks later than we usually would so maybe mm -hmm. that appetite just just isn't isn't there right now. People may just yeah. not be feeling it, but hey, the folks at Edmonton needed to sell some hotel rooms and sell some hockey tickets and TSN had to get their ad revenue. So everybody, everybody gets their piece. That's fine. Jeff, I want to give you some quick uh, baseball thoughts here before we uh, let go, because really and truly we are past the dog days of summer. We are now into the home stretch, about six, seven weeks left in the season. It's make or break time for a bunch of teams, and the Jays have largely been breaking the last couple of weeks. But there are three awesome series that get underway tonight. The Jays and the Orioles in Toronto, massive series after the Orioles took a series in Camden Yards last week. The Rays and the Yankees. The Yankees, a team that you and I had been heaping all sorts of praise on, have really stumbled yep. since the All-Star break. Yeah. I think it'll be tough for the Tampa Bay Rays to catch them in the division, but it's not outlandish if the Rays beat them three straight this week. What about the Mets and the Braves? The Mets and the Bravos competing for the first overall spot in the AL East after a slow start. Atlanta has been making their way gradually up the standings, but the Mets, second best team in baseball after the LA Dodgers. Plus, there's a bunch of playoff hopefuls the Jays fans are worried about who are getting a pretty easy series to start the week. The Guardians are visiting the Tigers for a doubleheader today. We have the Mariners and the Angels, the Twins and the Royals. Jeff, it's baseball season, buddy. Yeah. 
less than I guess we're just over a month away, probably from the playoffs. Uh, so seven weeks, really seven re- weeks, seven weeks till the playoffs. Seven weeks, so a month and a bit, and you're really starting to see it. Uh, I think uh, you know, looking at the standings specifically in the AL, if you look at what the standings are like and the wild card, there's teams all over the place, and I, I mean, like you just touched on the Yankees. The Yankees are two and eight in their last ten games, like. I mean, they're obviously going to make the playoffs. They're obviously going to continue to be outstanding and most likely get that number one seed in the AL East. But, like, it's kind of all over the place. It's it's really unpredictable. The Jays not doing so great in the last week or so, too. I think they have two wins uh, in in the last seven days or so. Uh, Not very good. But you look throughout everywhere in that AL East, no team's on a winning streak or a losing streak. It's kind of all over the place. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a... A, a nice chaos to see in a weird way. It's kind of nice to see all these teams uh, fighting for that last spot. And it's really unpredictable. And for the Jays specifically, they have the Orioles this week, or at least for the next couple of games. Then they move on to the Yankees. Then they move on to the Red Sox. So this is the, these are crucial games for the Toronto Blue Jays. And it's going to be great because they're playing all in-division rivals and teams that are really vying for a playoff spot. And they have something like 11 games against the Rays before the season's over as well, too. They've, they've got a lot of in-division stuff to uh, work their way through. And it's time to get those wings flapping. Enough of fledgling time for the Jays. It's time to take flight if they want to make this playoffs. Jeff, we got to get out of here, but thanks for this, buddy. No worries. See you tomorrow, Dave. That is Jeff Ryman. He's at the AMI Sports Desk. You can find the World Junior Hockey Championships starting at 2 p.m. Eastern time today for some other preliminary action, but the main event, 6 p.m. tonight, Eastern time, when Canada takes on Finland. That's on TSN. Or you can catch the Jays on Sportsnet just after 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern time. So pick your poison in the world of sports today. Let's go to Grace Scofield. Grace has the national weather updates. Thanks, Dave. Here's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. We're going to start off in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, where there's some showers or periods of drizzle today with a high of 21 degrees. In Charlottetown, a mix of sun and cloud with 30% chance of showers late this afternoon and a high of 24 degrees. In St. John, it's mainly sunny today with a high of 24 degrees. In Quebec City, sunny this morning and early this afternoon, then a mix of sun and cloud with 30% chance of showers this afternoon and a risk of a thunderstorm this afternoon as well, with a high of 26 degrees. In Toronto today, a mix of sun and cloud with a high of 27 degrees. In Sault Ste. Marie, it's sunny, becoming a mix of sun and cloud near noon with a high of 26 degrees. Over in Brandon, Manitoba, it's mainly cloudy, with a 30% chance of showers early this morning, a 60% chance of showers late this afternoon. There's a risk of a severe thunderstorm early this morning and a risk of a thunderstorm late this afternoon, with a high of 27 degrees. In Regina, a mix of sun and cloud, with 30% chance of showers late this afternoon and a risk of a thunderstorm, with a high of 28 degrees. Today in Lethbridge, Alberta, it's sunny, there's a heat warning in effect, and there's a high of 31 degrees. In Red Deer, Alberta, it's mainly cloudy, with a 30% chance of showers early this morning, but that will clear up later this morning, and a high of 28 degrees heading into the afternoon. 
In Whitehorse, some increasing cloudiness today with a high of 18 degrees. In Kelowna, a mix of sun and cloud that'll clear up late this morning with a high of 32 degrees. In Vancouver, BC, it's sunny, becoming a mix of sun and cloud this afternoon with a high of 25 degrees. And that was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Grace. Coming up next, tech company Ericsson believes a holistic approach to deployment can keep energy usage and costs down. Mark Aflalo of Double Tap TV will explain what that means. But first, we've talked about Samsung's new phones. We've talked about their new watches. Today in Tech Trends, Sherry Preston has information on their new earbuds. Timing is interesting given Google just launched its Pixel Buds Pro, and I would say the Galaxy Buds 2 Pro go after much of the same audience. And Gadget's Sherilyn Lowe says Samsung's new Galaxy Buds 2 Pro sport a new design. They're smaller than before. They fit in, you know, I, I played with a pair at a hands-on event. They fit in my ears, you know, very comfortably and snugly. They also support active noise cancellation. Lowe says the noises you do hear, though, will be high quality. The audio quality here is supposed to be a lot better with support for 24-bit streaming. Samsung also touts the Bud's ability to automatically switch between different devices. You can use it to switch between your Samsung laptop, your Samsung phone, your Samsung tablet, and you know not have to fiddle with the Bluetooth settings as much. Pre-orders for Samsung's new Buds open now, starting at 229 bucks. With Tech Trends, I'm Sherry Preston, ABC News. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown. 5G networks are becoming more common, and that means that tech companies and users are using more energy to access those networks. One company, Ericsson, believes a more holistic approach may be the way to keep that energy usage and costs down. Mark Flalo from Double Tap TV is here to explain what that means exactly. And, of course, Mark is the host of Double Tap TV, which you can find Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time on AMI-tv. Hey, good morning, Mark. Morning, Dave. How are you? I'm well. Always nice chatting with you. So I need to start with a more general picture here. Okay. What are some of the challenges facing tech companies as 5G rolls out more broadly? Well, so 5G is a more powerful technology in terms of the amount of reach it has. So it, it pushes a signal out a lot further, which requires more power to amplify that signal and get it to various places. So as a result, what happens is, is the equipment and the antenna and the hardware behind it obviously consumes more power to get that signal out there. And it's bi-directional, don't forget. So you're sending and receiving. So there's a lot of information and a lot of hardware that's in there and in the infrastructure across the board at every cell site. Plus you've got, you know, co-location centers where they have servers and different infrastructures and it consumes a lot of power. So the challenge is as we continue to look towards, you know, sustaining the environment and making sure that everything from vehicles to infrastructure are all more sustainable, people are looking at ways in which they can optimize their energy usage in different ways, shapes, or forms, which we're going to get into in a moment, to make sure that they're not over-consuming or really taxing the infrastructure that they use. So let's let's talk about Ericsson, the, the tech company from Sweden. They say, let's use a holistic approach. What do they mean by that? Okay, so they have introduced a way that's going to break things down into four different segments. The first segment looks at preparing the network. So what does preparing the network mean? That means analyzing how much data is going to be going back and forth, analyzing how much 
power is going to be consumed to actually run these data centers. Modernizing the systems um, is one way that they can look at actually optimizing everything that's going on. Not only the existing and the new 5G infrastructure, though, looking and modernizing some of the older infrastructure, such as the 3G, LTE, and the 4G, that is still there and still operational and also consuming a lot of power. So if you look at it at a whole and look at an entire cell site, for example, that's beaming data back and forth on all these different bands, adding 5G just increases it. But if you look at modernizing everything and using more efficient equipment across the board, then you're doing a better job at preparing the network for that new introduction of the 5G. Second it, part of this approach. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, please, please go ahead. Please continue. So the second part of the approach is activating what they're calling energy-saving software. So this is a combination of AI and different software tools that can analyze the amount of data and traffic that's going back and forth at given points in time. Kind of like, you know, smart light bulbs and various things in our home, smart thermostats can analyze when you're home and you're not home. It can bring down power when it's not needed. So it doesn't have to be blasting 100% all the time. It can actually lower power and use AI to determine when it needs the power and doesn't need the power. And there's more. Uh, step three is to build 5G with precision. And that goes back to modernizing and making sure that when they're designing the hardware and the software and everything that goes along with it is that they're using every tool at their disposal to make sure it's energy efficient. Same way we look at Energy Star compliant appliances and windows, they need to do the same thing. And the final thing, I will let you speak, I swear, David, I will, um, <laughs> is, to, is to actually operate and make the infrastructure and the actual site itself more sustainable meaning using solar, using wind power, using hydro, using other ways of not consuming harsh chemicals, coals, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the holistic approach. Okay. That definitely counts as holistic in my mind. And sorry, Mark, I didn't mean to interrupt you. You had the information, no, so there's no need for me to talk. <laughs> if you have the info, just give it to the people. Uh, what does the data say? Has this approach caused any energy reduction for Ericsson? Definitely. Yeah, definitely across the board. They've seen, number one, they've seen definitely on the bench testing when it comes to optimizing the equipment, there's definitely a difference. If you look at just computer evolution over time, we're seeing more powerful computers consuming less battery power and less power overall. So definitely on that side, it, in terms of the actual sites themselves, using you know adding uh, adding a, a windmill, adding some solar panels. Again, it taxes takes a tax off the actual existing you know hardline infrastructure. So they're definitely seeing the benefits, and it's something that's going to continue to evolve over time. Ericsson is based in Sweden, but their reach yeah. goes well beyond just the Nordic countries. Are other countries adopting a similar philosophy that Ericsson is laying the template for? So this is a, it does two parts to this answer. Number one is that there are companies that use Ericsson's infrastructure and use their hardware and their software. Canada is one of those places that relies heavily on Ericsson. So they're, you know, Bell, Telus, et cetera, et cetera. If just by using Ericsson's equipment and their infrastructure and their telecom, they're already adopting a lot of these things as to what they're doing on their, their actual sites. It's definitely a lesson I think to be learned. And at the end of the day, by being more efficient and, and thinking in this way also saves money. So they'd be stupid not to adopt some of these patterns and some of these things that Ericsson has discovered. Is there any impact on consumers to be talking about more energy-efficient 5G? I mean, the joke with energy-efficient uh, dishwashers or, or uh, energy-efficient uh, washing machines or, or, or fridges is they don't get your clothes as clean. They don't get your dishes as clean. They don't keep your drinks as cold. Is there any trickle-down impact? And oh, by the way, a lot of, in a lot of cases, that's like totally false, but people love to make that argument. Is there any trickle-down to consumers here about more energy-efficient networks? 
nothing that will be noticeable to a user at the end of the day. Obviously, there's going to be differences in terms of power consumption and the way in which data is sent and received, but nothing that anybody's really going to see in any way, shape, or form. Your phone is not going to stay cooler, I promise. <laughs> okay, well, that's well put. Uh, Mark, thank you for this. We appreciate it. Thanks, Dave. Have a good week. That's Mark Flalo. He's one of the co-hosts of Double Tap TV. You can find that show Tuesdays, 8 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Coming up after the break, I've got your accessibility story roundup. Grace has your entertainment report. Nazreen Abdel-Majid will tell you what's trending. And Ramya Amuthan will look ahead to this afternoon on Kelly and Company. Lots coming your way on Now with Dave Brown, right here on ami back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. We'll catch up with Grace in just a moment, but I've got your accessibility story roundup. <laughs> so when I say the name Coldplay, you know that rock band. They're like one of the biggest bands in the world. Well, they recently posted on their social media what they're doing to make their concert going experience more accessible. So for deaf or hard of hearing concert goers, they're are sign language interpreters and subpack kids available? A subpack, by the way, is a tactile device that interprets music via bass lines and beat onto a tactile surface for someone to enjoy. For people with sensory disabilities, there are sensory kits available and also sensory refuge stations set up around the venue. And for guests who are blind or low vision, they now have offer touch tours before the show. A couple neat little features there. I think the idea of being able to go on stage and touch the sets would be really cool, whether you're blind or low vision or whether you're anybody at all. That sounds really neat. So if you think you would benefit from some of these initiatives or have suggestions on how they could make their shows more inclusive, they are actively encouraging people to reach out for them. So you can email access at coldplay.com, access at coldplay.com. So after I took a look at this story and tried to find out uh, some of the features they were offering... I said, well, when's Coldplay coming through town? Where are they playing? Turns out it's going to be a little while till they're in North America. They're just finishing up a tour in England and Scotland, and they're off to South America through to the end of the year. Lots of shows in Buenos Aires and Argentina. So if you want to go to Argentina, there's like eight shows in Buenos Aires. There's like five or six in Rio de Janeiro. There's a couple in Sao Paulo, a few in Bogota, Colombia. There's a few in Chile. Lots of great shows in South America. So I don't know, maybe you're inclined. Maybe you want to hop way south of the border and enjoy a Coldplay show and then send them an email, access at coldplay.com and say, hey, I want to touch the stage. Sounds pretty cool to me. It's cool play. Okay, let's move on. Grace Scofield and the Entertainment Reports. Grace, while I'm talking about concert-going experiences, folks are getting revved up for fair season. Everybody's ready for the CNE to finally come back this weekend, although the festival has found itself at the center of a labor dispute. Oh, dear. The Technical Standards and Safety Authority, or the TSSA, are on strike right now. And so the CNE is going ahead. They're opening up without the usual safety inspections that they would go through. However, the CNE has said that they have higher standards than TSSA, and their engineers will be doing safety checks. So all the rides should be up to the standards of fairgoers. Okay, all right. I am going to the CNE. I will be there. I don't know if this dissuades me 
from going on rides or not. I think it would depend on the ride for me. Right. Like, I think if it's something close to the ground, I think we're going to be fine. If I'm in the air, though, no, I'm okay. Yeah, I'm lower good. lower velocity, closer to the ground, I think I'd be okay. Yeah. But uh, maybe I'd stay off the Ferris wheel. Right, the Ferris wheel. The What is it? The zipper, the thing that, like, turns upside down in the air. Oh, I, no, thank no, you. No, I'm not going to do that. I wouldn't do that anyway. I'm not one for rides like that. Um, but maybe just something a little... Closer to the ground. Lower speed. I always liked the one that looked like a spaceship. So it was kind of uh, circular. And then you would sit inside it and it would just spin you around like a straight circle spinning. Yeah, right. And then the chair would go up and down while you were spinning. Yeah. That was, that was like more my speed. Yeah, that was a good one. The strawberries. You can just like spin them around yourself. You know, go around in a little circle. Oh, I'm not familiar with the strawberries. Yeah, no, those ones were a big hit, the Sault Ste. Marie okay. Fair. Okay. Those ones were the thing. I, I made my dad, my dad doesn't do motion sickness very well. He gets really sick really easily. I made my dad go on the strawberries with me, and he was out for like two days. Well, that's that's what good parents do, though. <laughs> they, they, take one, they take one for the team. They take exactly. one for the kids. Yeah, it really is like fair season. Uh, yeah. the, the, the Capital Fair in Ottawa kicking back off, all the regional fairs around Ottawa uh, kicking off. I, I don't know if fairs are as like, much a thing in Quebec. I know we used to do the Brome Fair outside Montreal, but it wasn't quite the same thing. But once I moved to Ontario, once I moved to Ottawa, every little suburb would have their own fair throughout the summer. It was pretty cool, pretty neat. I didn't attend a lot of them, but some of them, like in Merrickville, they do like a demolition derby. At their fair, which, you know, seems pretty hardcore and brought out a certain element that I liked because it was a lot of canned beer. Absolutely. One of my favorite things is the food at fairs, though. I am a cotton candy lover. I love cotton As candy. As you explained last week when we yes. talked about uh, Dairy Queen blizzards. Exactly. So I want to go to the fair and I want to get some cotton candy. I My goal for this summer is to get to Canada's Wonderland and get myself a funnel cake. <laughs> I will do that. That is the only reason I'm going. I'm going to pay, what, a $60 admission and then pay another $24 for a funnel cake and then just go home. See, look at how we're ruining your <laughs> summer by, like, making you work. You know, like what happened, what happened to the good old days when you, when you weren't a student and the summer could actually like be for you. Right. Right. I do. You know, I miss them, but also this is just as much fun. Yeah, I well, say. you know, you get to hang out with me. That, that counts there for we something. Go. That, counts for, that counts for a lot. Grace, thank you for this. Of course. That's Grace Scofield with the entertainment report. Let's bring in Nizreen Abdelmajid to find out what's trending. Nizreen, our friends in Eastern Canada having a little bit of a party today. Yeah, so today, one of Canada's top trends is hashtag Acadian. It's National Acadian Day. And Acadians have celebrated National Acadian Day since 1881, August 15th. And the federal and provincial governments officially recognized this day in 2003 and 2004, respectively. And National Acadian Day highlights and um, and they recognize their historical presence on the land and celebrates uh, diversity today. And uh, in many places across the country, as you mentioned, uh, activities are taking place. There's festivals, there's parties, there's events, there's all types of events uh, just to celebrate their heritage, history, their culture uh, of the Canadian Acadian people. So it's a it's a bright day and a lot of people are using their hashtag National Acadian Day to kind of put their location and be like, OK, this is how I'm celebrating it. This is where I'm celebrating it. So um, I'll, 
to those who are celebrating it, happy Acadian Day. Yeah, to our friends in the Maritimes, specifically, uh, I suppose, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, you cannot tell the history of Eastern Canada and Atlantic Canada and the Maritimes without talking about the Acadian experience and what that's meant for both the French language, for French culture, and for the Acadian people as they uh, spend time on that land. So definitely, une bonne journée Acadie to our friends out there celebrating. And as you said, there's certainly, so there's certainly some diaspora elsewhere in the country who are going to be having some celebrations today as well. But definitely for folks in the Maritimes, Monday, August 15th for Jean-Lay Acadie is a big, big deal. Nazreen, thank you for this. You got it. That's Nazreen Abdel-Majid letting you know what's trending. I lied to you before. There is no Ramya Amuthan today on the show. She's busy, has stuff to do. But there is indeed... A new episode of Kelly and Company coming your way, 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. Michael Babcock will tell you about a highly requested app for the Blind Shell Classic 2 phone. You'll also get a chance to learn about Toronto's favorite summer foodie event, Summerlicious. Your food is too summerlicious for you, babe. And on Know Your Rights, Daniel McLaughlin will discuss the right to be free from unreasonable search and seizure. You can catch Kelly and Company 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio or download the podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Coming up after the break, we'll catch up with Dave Thompson. He'll share some details about an upcoming job fair hosted by the Richmond Center for Disability. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. This Friday, August the 19th, the Richmond Center for Disability will be hosting the Richmond Job Fair at the Lansdowne Shopping Center. Here to tell you more is Dave Thompson, the Community Outreach Coordinator at the Richmond Center for Disability. Hey, Dave, thank you for making time for us this morning. We're grateful. Oh, you're welcome. It's uh, it's great to be on uh, this show and uh, promoting our job fair. Uh, and we've had a, I had a wild weekend home in Calgary and we just got home last night. So, <laughs> Hey, look at you crossing the border, getting moving and shaking, getting from point A to point Z. So before yeah. we get into some of the specifics of this year's job fair, tell me a bit how it came about and how many years it's been running. Well, um, actually this is only our first year. Um, the mall that we uh, are in because we're in a temporary location because our original location was taken down and we're waiting for it to be rebuilt. And um, so uh, they had a job fair last year, but we took on a, uh, a prov- or sorry, a federal job program with youth called Employment and Empowerment Program, and it is uh, finishing up in March. And we kind of wanted to do a last sort of blast to really help promote it. So we thought we would try a job fair, and then we connected with the mall because we've been wanting to do more stuff with the mall and being involved with the mall and the owners and maybe bring in more people with disabilities into the mall. But of course, COVID uh, threw a wrench in that. So this is kind of our first kick at the can of doing uh, something really big with the mall. So we're really excited. Oh, that is really exciting. For people who may not be from the greater Vancouver area, they, they may not realize how big Richmond is, what a huge population center Richmond is. Who are some of the companies that are going to be present at this particular event? Uh, well, I'm just going to look at my big whiteboard I have off to the side here. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> um, We have Amazon, Costco, uh, Starbucks, Walmart, 
Uh, winners and home scents are some of the big ones. And TNT supermarkets as well, which is very big out here. Oh my gosh, yeah, some huge opportunities there. Some major companies with lots of positions. So Dave, what advice would you have for a visitor or an, an attendee to have prepared if they're going to be attending this event? Well, I think as, uh, as someone with a disability anyways, uh, for sure, you have your resume and whatnot else. So just be very open. Uh, we're trying to... Uh, uh, be that facilitator between the companies if they feel a lot of times, sometimes the uh, accessibility issue can challenge them. And so we want to be that bridge to say, hey, it may not be as hard as you think. And uh, if you come to us, we may be able to uh, steer you in, in a direction to a resource. It might just be as easy as software, uh, using Dragon Speak, using some sort of um, adaptable software. And, but it's just, it's one of those things where if you just don't know, you're scared, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes it's the unknown, right? That even even walking into an event, maybe you're going to be a little bit uh, cautious or you're a little bit shy even walking up to a table. So knowing that there's more of a support network there can make a big difference. Dave, I know you were just talking about it uh, a moment ago. What are some of those supports that may be available for a visitor on site? Uh, well, we're we're on site, so we're uh, myself, and um, we're going to have our own table, and we'll be sort of roaming around and sort of seeing if we sort of see people that may be struggling and whatnot else. Um, we have um, the uh, the the mall itself is extremely accessible. It's very close to the SkyTrain, and um, it's all very flat. There's no uh, stairs and ramps and anything in the mall. It's all one little flat area. So that's really good. And the actual place where we're having it is just a big circle. So there's not a lot of corners and uh, whatnot else. So you can get around quite easy if you are vision impaired or, or whatnot else. If the sight lines, it's not, you're not going to have to uh, be able to walk around a lot of poles and things like that. So it's quite an open area. Mm, definitely. That makes the experience a little bit smoother. There's no doubt about that one. What about registration? Let's say I'm interested. I want to show up. I want to talk to some of these employers. Do I have to register in advance? No, uh, we do have an Eventbrite page with, uh, and there's a QR code on there uh, for our poster and you can find most of the information right on there. You mentioned that it's on the Eventbrite. I know sometimes those web pages can get a little bit long. So we know we're going to put that up on our blog after the show, ami.ca slash now blog. But maybe what should people punch into their Google machine or punch into their, uh, into their web browser if they want to learn more about the event? Uh, you can probably just go to our website at www.rcdrichmond.org and the poster will be on a smaller sort of format there as well. Excellent. Give us that website one more time there, Dave. That's uh, www.rcdrichmond, all one word, .org. And while we're talking about the center, why don't we take a moment here to discuss some of the work that you and your colleagues are doing. What are some of the other projects the Richmond Center for Disability has on the go right now? Well, we're kind of, we call ourselves sort of a community for the disability community, like a community center. Um, we're a multi-disability center. So um, right now we slow down a little bit in the summer just to adapt to people doing on holidays and stuff like mm -hmm. that. We have some mm -hmm. fundraising. We have some fundraising activities. We're doing an ice cream giveaway or an ice cream fundraiser right now with a local company. Uh, we're doing a t-shirt uh, design contest right now for our new fundraising t-shirt. So um, there's that on the website. Um, so it's a little slow right now. And then we ramp back up on our sort of programs. We have almost like a semester style of programming, fall, winters, and spring. 
I'm I'm genuinely curious because we have a lot of representation for Vancouver on this show. We talk to a lot of folks who are either based in North Van, West Van, Surrey. We don't do a lot of conversation with folks from Richmond. And I know there's been a lot of changes in Richmond over the mm. course of the last 15 years. How is it as as a community in terms of the built environment for people with disabilities? What What's it like on the ground these days in Richmond? Oh, well, we, we were the first. Um, I, I was told we were one of the first uh, communities to have the the walk signs and the speakable signs to cross the walks, and um, I'm I use those things a lot with my bike. But I also have a father-in-law who's got retinitis pigmentosa, and I'm sort of his guide, so I find that really helpful. Uh, so there's that the bike lanes and everything is very and of course being so flat in Richmond helps already, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How has the SkyTrain changed the way Richmond has operated in the last 11 years since it got kicked up uh, before, after the, or right before the Olympics? Well, I think I came from Burnaby where the, um, we had a little problem with the SkyTrain. We had some crime and issues like that. And I know when the Olympics was going on, they were concerned about the same thing happening. And it really hasn't. Like They had people jumping from sta- station to station, breaking into houses, then jumping back on in Burnaby. But that uh, hasn't seemed to happen. It's, it's fairly good. And um, I find it uh, really helpful. Like I, I sometimes will go on the train. I have to use my cane and, uh, uh, the it's, it's very easy to get through the gates and, um, I find it really helpful. Hey Dave, give me one more reminder about the events coming up on Friday. I'm sorry. I took us for a little bit of a detour there. I'm just such a lover of the (laughs) Vancouver area that I like asking folks questions about what it's like on the ground, but give me a reminder again. Give me the, give me the sales pitch, the elevator pitch for the uh, job fair. Oh yes. Okay. So it's, uh, the job fair is August 19th. From 12 till 5, we're going to have employers there. We're going to have training services and, and uh, MPOs that also help people. Uh, our programs, we have the Employment for uh, Empowerment program. We also have another program called SIL, which is uh, Support for Independent Living. And that's uh, basically the EEP is for the younger. The SIL is maybe for a little bit older. But if you are trying to get back to work and maybe volunteering or you just or community involvement might be your only stage yet, then SIL is the program for you. And it's a sort of a one-on-one coaching idea. And uh, we work you through and say, hey, what do you think you can do? And um, our our person there, Louise, is great. And she's very skilled in uh, helping you as well. So we have those two programs. So they will be, they will have their own tables as well there. And we'll have all kinds of other volunteer opportunities. So bring your resumes and um, walk around. If you uh, will all be, the staff at the Richmond Center for Disability will all be in uh, bright purple shirts and I'm a big guy of 225 so I'm like a big walking grape you won't be able to miss me <laughs> and I'm pretty loud so <laughs> yeah when they put the big when they put the big bright colors on big guys like you and me we yeah. definitely stand out in a crowd there's uh, no doubt about that one although I wish I was 225 yeah. what I wouldn't give what I wouldn't give to uh, donate about 75 pounds off my body and be running the uh, 225 <laughs> scale hey uh, Dave always great catching up man nice to chat with you best of luck with the events on Friday and we'll talk to you again down the road Great. Thank you very much, Dave. That's Dave Thompson, Community Outreach Coordinator at the Richmond Centre for Disability. The Richmond Job Fair takes place August 19th at the Lansdowne Centre from 12 p.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific time. And as mentioned, if you want to learn a little bit more about the fair or about the organization, rcdrichmond.org, rcdrichmond.org. As I was reading you, the Kelly and Company handoff about uh, the story that Daniel McLaughlin's going to do about search and seizure, it got me thinking about this 
other story that I saw coming across the newswire this morning. So let's play it for you. A federal judge says a Michigan city violated the U.S. Constitution with its method of enforcing parking laws. Mark Remillard explains. U.S. District Judge Thomas Ludington says the city of Saginaw, Michigan, violated the Constitution by chalking tires as a method of enforcing parking laws. City staff would mark tires with chalk and then return later to see if the car was parked in one spot for too long. If so, a ticket would be issued. Judge Ludington said doing so without a warrant violated the Fourth Amendment's protections against unreasonable searches, but stopped short of making the city refund the tickets. Instead, he ordered the city to pay nominal damages of $1 per each marking. Mark Remillard, ABC News. It really makes you wonder why they would stop the practice, right? If you say something's unconstitutional, that means they should probably stop the practice. But then if you're only charging them $1 for every time they do it, and let's say the parking ticket costs 35 or 36 then, like, is there actually a punishment here? I also wonder if that's going to get uh, appealed uh, to a higher court. Federal judges, you know, there, there seem to be uh, some litigious opportunities for lawyers in America. I want to bring in Grace Scofield again. Grace, you showed yourself a lot of self-restraint in your entertainment reports, not talking about Harry Styles. Maybe you were saving it for later in the week for your weekly Harry Styles shout out. But that concert that you wanted to go to, is that in Toronto tonight? It's happening tonight and tomorrow and all weekend. I was refreshing Ticketmaster, that famous website that I talked about earlier in the summer, who sold tickets for $1,500 to see if there was more tickets. And none of them dropped below $700 until this morning when there's single general floor room, standing room only tickets for $237. That's like, that's a lot. Yes, like it, that's it, still a lot of money, especially <laughs> considering you have to camp out outside of Scotiabank Arena. Like, people started camping out on Saturday night for right. these shows just to get close to the stage. Right, and then you get in, and then you have to run to the like run to the floor to run to the front of the yeah, stage, which, by yeah. the way, hashtag not worth it. No, much, no. Much nicer to Please hang out at the back. Please avoid trampling people. Yeah, trampling, don't push, don't safety, shove, no just shoving. go. Much easier to get your access to snacks and beer if you hang yes, out at the back of the crowd, exactly. too. Exactly. I'm, I'm just saying. But maybe if you want to be like Lizzo and actually smell Harry Styles, then you do have to get a little bit closer. Which I understand. Although I I'm going to be know. honest with you, I understand. <laughs> Although I don't know, I don't know if you can get as close as Lizzo got for an actual smelling. Um 231. It's so funny how we can shift the Overton window on these things that that it used to be when I was a boy, when I was a young person. Uh 25 30 bucks was sort of the standard fee you might pay for a concert and for like a really big show, you'd pay 45 or 50 or when there wasn't actually a stub hub when you actually had to go to a human as the secondary market, I remember for a Ben Harper concert at the Montreal Jazz Fest, I think I spent 80 or $100 on a ticket. And like, I felt like that was a fortune to go spend. So I understand how 231 shifts the window. That said, a lot of these major tours now, like 200 bucks is the going rate. Like that's what you would go pay to see Elton John or Britney yeah. Spears. Yeah, I paid for uh, Lumineers tickets back in June. And I paid probably $150. And that was for an outdoor show. Yeah, Budweiser stage. They were decent tickets. I was still underneath the covered area of Ah, the stage. So I I was pretty close. I see. Okay. Uh, Not in the first section, but in that second raised section. So I wasn't in the yard part where you have to like sit on the grass. I was in the section before that. 
and I paid about $150 for each ticket. I got two tickets. So $300 for a night out at Budweiser Stage. Yeah. Plus overpriced beer. Plus, plus the overpriced beer, not certainly. Necessary. Um, but tickets, yeah, for a concert like the Lumineers, about $150. That's what I was expecting to pay. Another artist that I paid to go see in my first year of university, so a few years ago, was The Beaches at... Um, what is the club on the Danforth it's called? It's called the Danforth Music Hall. Thank you. Yeah, I needed that reminder. I paid about $40 for those tickets at the Danforth Music Hall. See, so, now we're talking, yeah, right? Like $40, yeah. like $40, I admit that inflation hits these concert tickets, right? So what, yes. what was a $35 or $40 ticket when I was young, I understand that like that since inflates. But I'd still say like a $40 ticket is of yeah. like the reasonable variety. That's what I that's what I like to see. Did I sit here in this very control room this morning and go, can I spend $237 on a Harry Styles concert ticket? I did. But I'm not going to. <laughs> our, our, our fr- you know what our friend Drake would tell us? He would tell us, YOLO, you only live once. Don't I don't need that kind of convincing. Anybody okay. who knows me who watches this right now is going to be like, Dave, no, don't tell her I that. I mean, come on. You managed to like spend some time in Vaughn and not go to the Vaughn Mill Shopping Center this weekend. There we go. See? I, I didn't go shopping this mm-hmm. weekend. There you go. You see? Or did I? Saving up for Harry Styles tickets. I did go for ice cream. I don't know if that counts. That doesn't really Okay, count. okay. So then I can buy Harry Styles tickets. Right, of course. There we go. All we'll, right. We'll just have to like talk to someone. We'll get, we'll get you a raise, you know? Maybe we can make, <laughs> maybe we can make this a tax write-offable expense, right? right? That you are our entertainment reporter. So if I you go report- I needed to talk about this. That's it. If you go report on the- Well, you already reported on the show today. But right? if you report to get on a, again tomorrow, but your yes. in-person experience, boom, tax write-off. What is a concert experience like at Scotiabank Arena? Independent contractor, Grace Scott. See, look at that. Grace, thank you for this. <laughs> of course. That's Grace Scott helping me chat with you as we wrap up this Monday edition of the show. Another edition of Now with Dave Brown. We'll be back again tomorrow morning, 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Tuesday edition of the show. You know what that means? A little Lawrence Gunther action. He's going to talk about what makes a hamburger green. Well, at least your meat alternative hamburger, not the mold that turns your actual meat hamburger green. The show starts at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor.